Subtext and Discourse, the podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, founding and director of Berlin-based gallery Jarvis Dooney. Gallery Weekend Brussels finished up yesterday and Berlin Art Week will commence this Tuesday the 6th of September and continue until Sunday the 13th. Although the spring art calendar was largely cancelled due to corona, the galleries, institutes and related organisations are doing their best to navigate the current restrictions, enabling audiences to get outside and experience art once again in person. One of many events that was postponed until the latter part of this year is the Wochenende der Moderna, or Weekend of Modernism, which takes place from the 18th until the 20th of September 2020, showcasing the architecture of the 1910s and 1920s concentrated in Berlin's southwest. Berlin-based curator and co-organiser of the event, Dr. Christina Nipper, invited me to speak with the person who initiated the Wochenende der Moderna, Dr. Harriet Roth, who not only compiled extensive research about the area and the major figures involved in the movement, but also lives in one of these historic buildings which will be open to the public on this unique occasion. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Subtext and Discourse, which is available for streaming on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. This episode was recorded when COVID-19 was at its peak, so being mindful of the situation, we documented our exchange out in the garden, which is why you'll occasionally hear birds singing in the trees whilst we speak. But without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Dr. Harriet Roth. So I did read your book, but I thought before we start talking about architecture, you were initially involved with medieval history and art history. Yeah, I started with medieval history for my MA. I think I just always wanted to do it because it was such a special period and you can never get access that easily again later in your life. So I figured when I had the chance at university to do something special, I wanted to do that. And I did modern history and history of art in a combination. Then after some years of work at a museum in Dresden, I actually got introduced to the topic for my PhD, which was the origins of museums in the 16th century. Oh, okay. So when museums, the idea for a museum came about. That's right. And it had a lot to do with the museum I was working in, but not only, it was always a great interest of mine. And I managed to get the right supervisor and we've identified the topic quite soon. And it was a treatise from 1565 by a young doctor called Samuel Quickerberg, who um, drafted the first idea of what a museum should look like. So after that PhD, which was really great fun, and I would actually do it again, which is probably very few people could actually say that about their PhD, yeah. because sometimes it tends to take years and years. It was really a great time and great fun. Then I had three children, <laughs> and like sometimes it happens in life, you have to pause for a while. Then I managed to get back into research at around 2000, which was connected with a very different topic, contemporary architecture. Mm-hmm. It's a big loop, but I think once you've done research, you always find back into research. And if yeah. it is a different topic, and architecture was always passion. For you personally or for... For me personally, but also for my husband, uh, wherever we were, wherever we traveled, and we traveled a lot, we always connected to architecture. And it was a dream, actually, to find at some time in our life a building of the early 1920s. And it wasn't planned in Berlin, but it just happened accidentally. 
It was a very unusual story because we actually had a real estate agent who showed us a lot of things and uh, it was a difficult time in Berlin. But he referred us to another agent who specialized in buildings from the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And we looked at it and we said, my God, it's great, but it's horrible. <laughs> because it was so much work and it was oh, so yeah. changed in the 1960s. But we very quickly actually connected to an architect who was specialized in the Bruno Taut Siedlung in the late 1980s, I think, in the early 90s, and did a huge renovation in that whole Bruno Taut settlement, which so much prägt. I will remember in a moment. Once you get out of the Onkel Tomstrasse station mm -hmm. in Seelendorf, uh, you step right into the Bruno Taut settlement mm -hmm. of that early 1920s. Well, it was started in 1926 and went on with the last section of that uh, settlement uh, in the early 30s. But that very early period is probably the most colorful, in my opinion. Obviously, it wasn't there at the time, but it was interesting for us to see where these four houses were located and to see if we were able to refit these houses into the whole settlement and into that whole very young area of architecture in Berlin. So you say you weren't looking in Berlin, you were just looking for a house that was built in that period? Well, we were looking in Berlin, but it was not a particular area or it was not a particular architect, but it was just an idea we had and it maybe fancy idea. Because are you from Berlin or where are you from in Germany? I was born in Frankfurt. Oh, okay. Originally. And then I um, stayed in Frankfurt on Main until the late 70s. And then my family moved to the UK. And then from the UK, I moved back very early to Germany and I went to university in Heidelberg and in Munich. And then I did my PhD at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Mm -hmm quite a lot of universities, but I think it's always interesting to see their different layouts and interests. But Berlin was part of uh, my husband's career. We decided to move here with the family, which was the right thing at the time. When we saw that house for the first time, the changes of the 60s were really quite shocking. Mm -hmm. We weren't sure if we were able to change the house into what it was originally. First of all, we had to find out what it was originally because everything was so overgrown with 60s design and horrible details details that just needed to be taken out. But we were lucky because the local department, um, this Landesamt für Denkmalpflege. I've got it here. Government Department for Conservation of Historical Buildings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's a mouthful. And we started a great collaboration with them. And for half a year, we were discussing how we could change that building from 1924, which was designed in 1923, into a building that was livable for a family with three children that needed to be opened up out into the garden because of the change of development plan in 1923. The big question was what from the 60s could be kept so not the whole building needed to be changed into a modern building looking like a building from the 1920s. It was a very interesting, very educational process for all of us, I believe. And you renovated a house before? We did renovate a house before when we lived in Hanover. It was also a house from the 19, early 1930s, which was a great experience as well because we had a great architect. We discovered a lot of the original details and we were actually able to keep the original details, but also modernize the house into what we needed for family. Mm -hmm. um, here in Berlin, it was different though, because at the time, carpenters weren't many and the whole building was, you know, at a, at a difficult position at the time. However, we managed to do it within one year. In that process, we actually discovered a full color scheme that was hidden under layers and layers of wallpaper and paint. 
and we decided to take the layers from 1924. That's what the conservation department discovered. It was a great find and it was pretty challenging because we had three different colors in the entrance of the house, which is orange, green and yellow. And then you step into a blue living room and from there you step into a dining room, which originally had a turntable. Mm -hmm. Crazy idea that had a lot to do with the engineering interests and fascination of the early 1920s. Not a record player. The room itself turned. The yeah. room itself turned. <laughs> yeah, that probably needs to be explained more precisely. The whole idea of that time and a fascination certainly of Richard Neutscher's was the theatre. Uh, we will talk about Richard Neutscher maybe a little more in a second. But he grew up in Vienna and while he grew up in Vienna in his late teens, he visited the theatre almost every night or the opera or the concert. It certainly was something that he was fascinated by. But here in Berlin with Erwin Piscator and the early Max Reinhardt, he certainly was challenged by what was happening in the theater. And it was just a crazy idea, but it worked at least for a while. The turntables were already taken out in 1928. Actually, by the first renovation, two of the houses experienced and they were taken out by Fred Forbart, who was also a well-known architect and engineer at the time, working together with Walter Gropius and with Adolf Sommerfeld, who was the investor of that whole area. So maybe we should step back just one little loop. Because this area, so Steglitz-Zellendorf is where we are. Right That's now. exactly where we are. So Adolf Sommerfeld, he owned most of the land around here, it seems. Yeah, he owned most of Steglitz-Zellendorf and was certainly the biggest investor in the area. Mm -hmm. And in its proximity to Berlin... Because most people probably don't know what's outside of the ring barn. It's quite south yeah. of Berlin, isn't it? Yes, and but the underground had already been finished just a little bit after 1925. So people could easily commute between the city and the outside. And part of the idea of developing in Zeelendorf was to get families out of the city into the green with little allotments, uh, little gardens and a perfect sized flat or house that would keep families healthy and actually help young families to be able to raise their children not in the middle of the city. And usually these houses were um, available for fairly reasonable price or rented, of course. Yeah, because is there a mix just still of, it's not maybe social housing, because a lot of these individual ones were for people that could purchase an entire house, weren't they? Well, these four houses that Richard Neutra built were actually mm -hmm. the exception. Mm -hmm. And they were at the time already called villas. Right, yes, okay. which was definitely something that Sommerfeld usually did not plan because he was really more interested in developing bigger settlements or developments in that area that were much more like social housing at the time. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, I think that has changed a little bit, quite a little bit, because many of those houses, again, are sought out by young families who want their children to grow up and rather sort of in the countryside than in the middle of the city. Exactly. But at the time... So yeah. the time is... Between the two world wars. It is, yes. So the, the, the four Seelendorf houses by Richard Neutscher were started in 1923 and finished in 1924. He didn't see them finished because he already moved to the United States in 1923. Mm -hmm. But it is really in the middle of a huge development of modern architecture in that area here, where many architects of the modern movement are working very closely together, very connected in, in many parts. Again, obviously, there is a competition between the government 
governmental building that's happening at the time and the private investors like Sommerfeld who were more keen to develop and to support architects that had a different modern thinking and were not conservative but part of the modern movement or the modern building modernes bauen or the neues bauen it is called in, in German and we will find many terms connected yeah. with that period so whatever you like but um, obviously there's still the very conservative part as well which Heinrich Tessenow to a certain extent still belongs to, even though he had a lot of connections to the modern movement, but he will still find a, a tilted roof rather than a flat roof. Yeah. And if you look at the development in the Fischtal, for example, you will have the traditional and the modern movement right opposite. So it's really worth looking into it because only there, I think, one really understands what was happening at the time. It's conservatism, which is the tilted roof, yeah. against modernism and the flat roof right in the same street opposite to each other. Literally... 10 minute walk from here, you will find very conservative architects. One of them, for example, Schmidt-Tenner, who was later also connected with the Nazis. And on the opposite side, you will have Bruno Taut. There was an exhibition at the time in 1926 showing the Fischtal area. And it's really where the, the origin of the modern movement started, if you look at it closely. Even on the other side of the Ritter Neutral buildings, you will find developments by Sommerfeld that go back to 1920 and 1921. Gropius was involved with one of them, just right opposite number 87. It shows very traditional architecture, completely opposite to what you see on the other side of the street. So what Sommerfeld was also interested in was really like a repertoire of various styles that his company would be able to deliver oh, okay. on demand. He had a broad portfolio. Yeah, but it shows so much his interest for avant-garde and for everything modern. He was able with his own sawmills in Silesia to actually produce the building materials at the time. So that was a huge advantage to other developers of the time because they just wouldn't be able to get hold of any building material because yeah. it was so rare. And he also developed new ways of building, different types of building. He was just an absolute entrepreneur with a very competitive sense of making money, but also developing new ways of building, which he became very famous for. If you look at his work, I think there are very few architects who have so many patents in his career or in his archival documents oh, as really? him. Wow. He's quite a figure and he was fortunate to meet Richard Neutra in connection with Erich Mendelssohn. And Erich Mendelssohn was the boss of Richard Neutra at the time. So Richard Neutra, with those four buildings, had his first own commission directly from Sommerfeld. And it was always assumed that Richard Neutra was still working under the guidance of Mendelssohn, which of course he was. But that commission was in fact a direct commission from Sommerfeld to Richard Neutra, which again shows, because Richard Neutra was not known at the time, that Sommerfeld had this sort of sense of new architect that he could support and maybe make famous under his guidance. Yeah, because Mendelssohn was in Palestine at the time, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. And yeah. quite a few of the other German architects were also building for the German Jewish population that was fleeing Germany right. in the lead up to the National Socialists. Yeah. They were building there. So Mendelssohn was in Palestine at the time. And that's why Richard Neutra was left to design the four houses himself, essentially. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. They were obviously in connection. And, and in fact, Richard Neutra was also on one competition with Mendelssohn and Haifa, which they won. It was not built in the end, but they actually got the money for it. And Mendelssohn was very generous and actually paid him the money directly, which he really needed because he had a rough time in Berlin in, in this time of 1923. It was just luck to be 
with Eric Mendelssohn, who Neutscher saw in a magazine called The Dial in 1921. He was fascinated by it. They met and Eric Mendelssohn immediately engaged Richard Neutscher to work with him. It was a very fruitful work, however competitive. Mm -hmm. Both architects are very artistic, very individual. It was never good to have both in the same room, many people oh, okay. said, because they were just too, um, too ambitious. Mm -hmm. But they both had quite a different philosophy to design, didn't they? Yes, so that's for sure. Eric Mendelssohn was very much connected to Expressionism. Mm -hmm. Certain citations of that you can see on the outside of the Salendorf houses, which is the red stucco band that goes around the southern side of three of the houses. And the fourth one, it was actually not allowed by the historic department of Landesdenkmalamt again. Yeah. <laughs> no, not Landesdenkmalamt. It's actually the local Denkmalamt. There are different institutions in Berlin, which makes it a little complicated sometimes oh, okay. to understand yeah, the connection. Especially they don't agree with each other. <laughs> That's exactly the point. <laughs> But um, So it was not allowed to rebuild a panel around that southern side of the building, which actually gives it a very strong feeling of speed and tension around that side. But since it was taken off in the 1960s, it was not able to put back on. But it's definitely Eric Mendelssohn, you can see there. If you look at his other buildings in Berlin on Heerstrasse, for example, it's very clear that it is his influence. Yeah. So they were working together, that for sure. However, it was Richard Neuter's completely individual design that he realized with these four houses. When you were looking for a house, from the modernist period, from the 20s, 30s. Had you heard of Richard Neutra before then? Yes, we did hear of him before. Because he's It's quite known in the US. And when I was, I suppose, had a crush course in the history of Richard Neutra over the yes. last few days, the Kaufman Desert House in Palm Springs, mm -hmm. a few people have said it's one of the most important houses in the United States as an example of international style architecture. It sure is. That's quite an accolade. It sure is. And if you think where he started in Berlin and look at these four houses and the circumstances he was able to build them is very, very unique. As I said, he was very ambitious. He mm. always wanted to go to the United States. And when he was a student in Zurich, just after the First World War, he saw a big sign saying, California calls you. That call never left him. He started to get his affidavit immediately once he got to Berlin and had some connections to the United States. He loved Berlin, but he found it very depressing. He was not very successful financially, except for that one commission he did. Yeah. It was not enough to start his career, and he was able to get to New York in 1923, worked on a few jobs there, and then met Frank Lloyd Wright on the funeral of Sullivan. And he invited him to come to Taliesin, mm -hmm. and that was his claim to fame. Wow. So he worked in 1924 till 1925 with Frank Lloyd Wright in Taliesin and then decided to go to Los Angeles because he still had that connection with Rudolf Schindler, whom he already knew from Vienna, and who became a friend and also an important correspondent for his immigration to the United States. Mm -hmm. Schindler had also been an employee of Frank Lloyd Wright's, also tried to be independent in Los Angeles, just at that time had started his first building and had built his first house. And that's where the young family of Richard Neutron moved in 1925. 
And then they started a collaboration. The collaboration didn't work very well because Richard Neuter was the one who was actually working. Schindler just like parties oh. <laughs> and enjoying himself a night. And he had this very extravagant, eccentric wife. And Richard Neuter's wife and their young son were enjoying it, but had different goals. So they separated and didn't meet for many, many years. And Richard Neuter was able to get that great commission for the Lovell Health House, mm -hmm. which was his claim to fame in 1926, 27. If you look at it, it's, it's a very unusual career coming from Berlin, from yeah, Austria, actually, from Austria, then yeah. to Berlin. With the connection of Eric Mendelssohn, I think it started off his career because the connections of Eric Mendelssohn worldwide at this time, he was already accredited architect. He just finished the Einstein Tower in Potsdam. Ah, oh, yes, yeah, that's right. And Richard Neuter actually arrived in the Mendelssohn office when the last bits and pieces of the Einstein Tower needed to be finished. What Richard Neuter actually did, he designed the garden, which he had learned in Switzerland just after the First World War. He had a real training as a garden architect, and that's what he did for the area area around the Einstein Tower. You cannot see it anymore in it today, oh. but the Einstein Tower, is, it's, it's amazing. And it's one of the most radical expressionist buildings that are still around, I think. Mm -hmm. With that possibility, Richard Neuter actually did have a great entrance into his career, I think. Yeah. When I think about all the names that come up in the book that he's surrounded by at that time, he was really in the heart of it. So he was really quite lucky for his surroundings, I think. Yes. Mind you, Eric Mendelssohn, of course, was very connected with the Berlin Society. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's just like today, you know, he was introduced into the society and was able to meet people. However, Richard Neuter was eccentric to a certain extent. And even though he was ambitious, he had his own mind and his own idea of what buildings should be like. What I really liked about his approach to designing or to architecture was rather than it being his vision and what he wanted to design, is he saw the importance that I need to find out what the person who's going to be living in this house wants and how I'm best going to accommodate their needs. And he was linking that back to what he observed with Freud because he knew Erich Freud. He knew his son, so he was exposed to some of Sigmund Freud's workings and then came up with questionnaires and surveys to ask the client and then try to best meet their needs. Exactly. That's what he started doing very early in his career. Mm. And this sort of catalogue of questions is delivered in many different versions. Uh, I think I've only seen the later ones, but some of them are referred to for a very early period, but I was never able to see them. However, even the later ones, they're so clear in what he wants the client to lay out for him for the personal desires and personal needs that every family has. Mm -hmm. That was something that was very, very important to him. He would spend weeks and months on end just talking to the client. And apparently he was always very fond of women, so he would always rather talk talk to the women than to the husbands because he knew that they were the ones who would express their needs rather than the, the male part of the family who would be more technical and distant. Oh, okay. That's yeah. interesting. So thinking about the four houses here then, yeah. your book is the first real document dedicated to the buildings. Was there much research initially when you went to look deeper into them, like even when you renovated the place? Was there much in the way of records or something to show how they came about, why they're here, what their story is. That's a really interesting question because that's exactly what I asked myself when we started renovating the house. First of all, I realized that the local um, government, literally a mile away, still had the original drawings, which until you start building or renovating a place, you don't realize. But the plans of all four houses and the original planned 12 houses were still available. I started looking at them, evaluating them, all the different versions of them. That was fascinating. 
through the connection with the family, the sons of Richard Neutra, who both live in the United States, I realized that Richard Neutra had taken his material with him in 1923. And after his death in 1970, his wife and he, before he had passed away, gave most of the material to UCLA in Los Angeles and to Cal Poly Pomona in just south of Los Angeles. Some of the material also is at the Getty Institute in Los Angeles. So I went over for research for a few times and actually looked at the material that's still there. And it showed that most of the work that he did in Berlin, also the drawings with Eric Mendelssohn, mm -hmm. he actually took with him. And they were archived there. I also had a chance to look at all the other buildings he worked on with Erich Mendelssohn and managed to take some of them back with me to Berlin to the conservationist and the supervisor of the Erich Mendelssohn archive. It was interesting because some of the material never actually had been visible here in Germany. So to bring these two versions or let's say two locations back together again for the book was something I was very keen on. Just to show even though he didn't flee Germany for political reasons but just because he wanted to leave Germany. He mm -hmm. did. He He was not pressured or threatened by the Third Reich. It mm -hmm. was his own free decision to leave. Mind you, not many of his colleagues later had the same experience, but quite the opposite. So he always had a very different opinion about his situation in America too, which is interesting because he always yeah. loved America. He took everything that he learned there as a great gift rather than something that he had to do because he was an immigrant. Mm -hmm. He always took it the other way. Obviously, he didn't have that bad experience to be a political refugee, but he always liked the position he had in the United States. But for the research, what was very interesting as well was the diaries that are at UCLA. It's not that they have never been seen before or never been used before, but I realized that in terms of his early career, there's lots and lots of information in these diaries. And there are 10 diaries spanning from 1910 until 1922, exactly that period he stayed in Berlin. Unfortunately, not for the last year of 1923, because he lost his diaries in oh. the United States, which is a shame. But at least it gives us a good idea of his early training in Vienna at the Technical University. It gives his first impressions of architecture, his thoughts about architecture, his thoughts about his education at the university and his own development as an, a young architect. This was really valuable material. And the other material that I used was material from Cal Poly Pomona, which had the personal correspondence between him and his wife. That was absolutely fascinating also for that early period where he worked in Berlin and where he didn't have any money and was actually working at a theater on stage as a backup just to get enough money for the next month. Yeah. Um, so he had a hard time. But this material was really quite new, as well as the material outside of Berlin, because when the two big researchers of Richard Neuter, Thomas Heinz and Barbara Lamprecht, produced their works on Richard Neuter, the GDR was still around Berlin. Oh, of course, so yeah. the archives weren't accessible and it was Barbara Lamprecht who was the first one who actually was going to Luckenwalde, which is just an hour south of Berlin where Richard Neutscher built a cemetery as the city architect of Luckenwalde. But all that material was not published until then. To actually bring all these logistically very different materials together was great. Yeah, because I think even when I tried to find out information about him online, most people considered his history of architecture from when he started in the exactly. US. And it's almost like the time in Europe with these forgotten years, or yeah, they, were, they so. were lost almost. If anything, it's just the fault of circumstance that because people were fleeing and people were yes. shifting around the post-Second World War period when Germany was divided, maybe that's why as well, like a lot of the records and materials and what evidence there was yeah. there, nobody knew that it existed. Exactly. Well, well, some people knew that it existed, but again... 
This had a lot to do with being able to read German. And the two great researchers do speak some German, and Barbara's German is incredible. Still, if it's archival material and some of most of it handwritten, it is it can be very challenging. Same for me. If I go to the United States and look at material that I'm not very used to, it's just the same. So I think it had a lot to do with the GDR times that that material outside of Berlin, where Richard Neuter was working for one and a half years, was not that accessible. And being able to rediscover that was quite a find. Yeah, definitely. I thought as well that because Mendelssohn wasn't in Germany at the time, and even that Neutra left Berlin before the buildings were even completed, and Sommerfeld's plan was to have 12 houses? That was the first draft. Yeah, and only four of them got completed. It's almost like from the point of view of the people involved, that the project was almost abandoned halfway through. I was wondering if that is a reason why as well, that the records of it are a bit scant, because when I was reading the part about the colour theory, they were saying that Richard wouldn't have ever seen the colours be implemented, and then who did it come from? Was it part of the original design? Was this something that Alfred Sommerfeld thought, we can try this out, because he was experimenting with different techniques anyway? It's interesting to think about it and just to wonder what was the entire process that what happened. But I suppose if Richard had the opportunity to go to the US, which he wanted to do from the beginning, then this could kind of wait. Well, the thing is that in the local archives, I've never found any evidence for the color. So I believed looking at Sommerfeld's interests and his work with his own building in Limonenstrasse, which was finished in 1921, which was colored by the class of wall coloring from the Bauhaus. I believe that the connection is so obvious. Yeah that he might have consulted the Bauhaus or consulted even Walter Gropius, whom Richard Neutra didn't meet until 1928, interesting mm -hmm. enough. Even though they were so close, they were just two kilometers away. I believe that it must have been Sommerfeld's idea or the influence of Gropius or a consultation of Gropius that actually developed the color scheme and then applied it to the building inside. Yeah. What happened that, that Gropius started building with Sommerfeld in 1920, which is really, really early in Gropius' career. But they met at um, the first Bauhaus board meeting mm -hmm. in 1919. Uh, Sommerfeld was already on the board, later one of the supporters of the Bauhaus. And shortly after 1919, he met Gropius for the first time. Sommerfeld was actually one of the first commissioners of Gropius. And then for the next 10 years, if not more, he worked with Gropius. And obviously, you know, there must be a connection, even if it wasn't a personal connection to Neutra, but it can be in many, many different ways. Absolutely. And if you look again on Tomstrasse and look at some of the buildings and actually start the research, you realize that there are three buildings built by Gropius, just next to the four Neutra buildings. It's all so close and connected that it feels almost difficult to say that, you know, they were not connected because it cannot be. Yeah. It's interesting because the area in Steglitz-Zellendorf was not destroyed in the war. Mm. So like you just mentioned, it's, it's really like a little time capsule because the buildings are either preserved or they were renovated. Mm -hmm. Was this still west? When Germany was, or when Berlin rather was sectioned off. Definitely, yes. This was still West Berlin. Yes, it went down to Glienicke Brücke in Potsdam. Uh, well, just merging yeah. into Potsdam, of course. The district Stickel-Sellendorf goes until the Glienicke Brücke, which is a huge district, actually. Yeah. I think because there were also a lot of investors who were quite affluent, who were able to commission architects that could build private houses here for them. That's why there's such a density of modernist architecture yeah. nowadays 
holidays. And that's something that we really wanted to show on the Modernism Weekend. Mm -hmm. This area, it does almost seem like a little playground for the people that were really at the forefront of those movements. So the expressionistic architecture, the modern movements, and really everything that was challenging the status quo in mm -hmm. terms of everything that had been done up until that point. This little pocket of the city was one of the areas where they really felt like they could just try everything out. And maybe it is part of the vision of Sommerfeld that sure. he had that vision and said, well, I believe in this and I believe in these people and I can help fund it or I can be a patron to this movement and I can help establish it. I think the fact that so many of the buildings are all still, none of them have been destroyed. Everything's largely untouched aside from renovations that have happened over the years. I think I mentioned earlier on in the 60s, there mm -hmm. were lots of building and renovations going on that one would probably do very differently today. So some of the buildings also, if you look at the Ernst Freud building in Waldmeisterpfad, and it's just off the district Stiglitz-Zellendorf in Charlottenburg, but mm -hmm. that shows what was possible to change in the 60s, where you would probably nowadays say, oh no, this is so original, we keep the original, we build back the original and try and change it into a modern contemporary building nevertheless without destroying. I'm just trying to think when that happened though because it was the same I think in most countries that we just either knocked buildings down or started again. Maybe it was the 80s or the 90s that we started to recognise no, these are of historical significance. We yes. should hang on to these buildings rather than completely getting rid of them or changing them. Yeah. Definitely. I, I think that it always has to do with the local authorities, of mm -hmm. course. And Berlin had such a special status in many respects. So things in Berlin were not always like everywhere else in Germany yeah. but for sure buildings who had historical importance they were uh, you know renovated or maintained at the best possible level but I, I just want to come back to Ernst Freud for one second because his work is really totally underestimated and in Berlin hasn't found as much recognition as I think would be worth he's one of the great examples of architects that built in Stiglitz-Zehlendorf and out of Stiglitz-Zehlendorf in other districts however he was never really Really recognized as one of the how do you say one of the partners or one of the members of the modern movement even though his work by the early 1930s was really respectable and he had to leave Germany like we talked about early on because of the Third Reich and moved to London to prepare the house for his father Sigmund Freud and the connection between Ernst Freud and Richard Neuter maybe is worth noting as well because many people have said that Ernst Freud's work in Berlin is similar to the Seelendorf houses but also to the modern movement and then Antroid actually did develop his own architectural style but was really stopped because he was a refugee in the UK. So his work needs even more to be recognized because he had to leave Germany and would have had a great career if he would have stayed. If you just think of those early psychoanalytical practices he built for the colleagues of his father here in Berlin who were never reconstructed or recognized in a way that probably should have been And Richard Neuter obviously enjoyed the connection he had to Ernst Freud, but had to make his own ways. They always stayed in touch their whole life. They yeah, were yeah. born in the same year and died in the same year, even in the same month, both in April 1970. Both had very different careers and they started off very differently and ended very differently, but were both in that modern movement in Berlin, which I think if you look at the density and in the connections both had, it's very special.
It's a very unique time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, even the relationship to the Bauhaus movement, even just throughout Europe in that period, when a lot of the bigger architects of that time were meeting with other European architects to think about how to design cities of the future, how to build and design houses that could accommodate populations that were concentrated in cities. That whole school of thought started around that same period, or that was the group of people, and whether or not he was directly involved with them, he was within those circles. So. Yeah, he's definitely part of them, absolutely. And he made, like you mentioned earlier on, he had this fabulous career in the United States. I guess that's the difference because the US and Europe are quite separate a lot of the time in terms of what's regarded or what's renowned. Frank Lloyd Wright obviously is an international name, but as far as the modern houses and even a lot of the ones that Julius Schulman documented, exactly. a lot of them are Richard Neutra's houses. Yes. And maybe it was just a movement in the US, definitely in California and Los Angeles with the bigger houses and the space that they could really see out their visions. And he was really a part of that. Absolutely. And he really formed that early international style. Absolutely. The word prägen. Yeah, prägen. That's a schönes Wort im Deutschen. Entschuldigung. Shape. Shape. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. See, this is what I want. That's what I meant earlier on. If you don't speak the language for two months, yeah. these words just don't. But he really, he really shaped that early modernist movement in the United States and later now called the international style. And the other thing he was always fascinated by and which he actually founded was the biorealism, the connection of the building to the outer space. And if you look at the houses, the Miller house, for example, you will find immediate connection between the inside and the outside. If you look at the Salendorf houses, that's really not the case. So I always had this presumption that he was actually unhappy in Europe. If you look at the correspondence between him and his wife of the 1920s, he writes about his depression. It actually related to the traumatic events of the First World War. For him, it was absolutely horrific and unnecessary to spend the youth in the war. And the way he writes about it, it's, it's horrific. And I think this traumatized him for a long, long time. And he only felt that he could get rid of this in the United States. And if you look at the pictures or if you read the letters between the young couple at the time, you see a completely different Neutra arriving in Los Angeles and mm -hmm. the pictures they're taking of the family and on the beaches with the sun and the light and his fascination for technology. He would build the Ford car lamp into his buildings because he just felt it was the right diffused light for the inside. Things like that or the electrical and technological design for the Lovell Health House is so incredible. It had almost every technical novelty you could think of. So that was what he really wanted. He wanted to do something new. He wanted to shape something. He wanted to design something extraordinary. And he felt in Berlin, maybe because of the early signs of the Third Reich, the depression after the First World War, the depression of the 1920s, mm -hmm. and his own experience that he had in the First World War, he, he wanted to leave. He must have been happy, much happier in the United States and dive into the work that he found that needed to be done there. And the possibilities, of course. Again, he was lucky he had the Lovell family as investors. Yeah, absolutely. So they were kind of his early patron, really. And it, it was an amazing patron. And they really saw eye to eye about most subjects and influences that actually came from Europe into America that Richard Neutra could explain and actually use and make use of for the house. It just seemed to fit for him perfectly. 
And I suppose at that time as well, because America's always been the new world and exactly. Europe has been the yeah, old world, exactly. but definitely in that time, that was all the things that you want to leave behind. He left in Europe and then went to the United States to kind of start afresh. And yeah. really going from Berlin to California wow. in terms of the weather and having the ocean, you can see why he would just get there and think, I don't need to go back to Europe now. I found the place that I want to be. Yeah. Mind you, he went back to Europe already in 1930. He was asked by Mies van der Rohe, who was the director of the Bauhaus at the time, to spend three or four months here and he quite enjoyed it but he really wanted to go back interesting again is that he built again in germany in the late 50s and 60s but during that period between 1925 and the 60s he traveled to germany mm -hmm. but um there was not much building that he did here yeah so he really was connected to the united states to the ideals to the possibilities well, he became an american citizen didn't he he became an american yeah. citizen yeah and all his three sons still the second son passed away last year and the youngest son he still lives in california mm -hmm. and they love it they've become americans more yeah. than anything else even though the youngest son once he retired started to reconnect to his father's work and started giving lectures about his work which is quite fascinating <laughs> so we do see each other oh, and, it's, uh, and it's nice to to hear Yeah. And what I really do want to publish, if there is a chance, is the diaries of that period between 1910 and 1922. Just out of curiosity to see about the old Europe and the Americas. Not the Americas, but what America would be like and what the difference is. And the diaries really give a good idea of what he was dealing with at that period and what, what the advantages were of having a very good, solid education at a Viennese university, which he took great advantage of for the building of the Lover Health House because his way of construction was so advanced compared to what was usual at the time in California. Mm -hmm. And that's what people always said was his big advantage because yeah. his technical engineering was good. I suppose it was lucky that he did document so much of his daily life, even writing to the other architects that he was not necessarily working with, but kept in correspondence yeah. and wrote back to each other. So because there was so much insight into his thinking and what his mood was and everything else, you really got a good impression of how that period shaped him and I guess changed the rest of his life. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, the diaries of his later life did not survive because there was a huge fire at the Fandelow house, which was the family's residence on Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Most of the documents and uh, drawings and diaries were burned, which is an oh, incredible shame. shame. Yeah. But what was saved, Diana, his wife, later gave to the UCLA and Capoli Pomona. But that's a real shame because it would have been fascinating to know the diaries once he'd actually arrived in the United States in 1925. Mm. Well, he, he published a lot in his books about his early experience and autobiography and other writings, but it, it's still a different tone. Absolutely. Yeah, a different well, it's kind been of told, I guess, retrospectively rather than exactly. in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's really fascinating about the diaries because they're so direct <laughs> and tell every little detail and silly details of the day. So that's quite... That's actually great. It's a good document to use. I just found it really important when we were able to purchase one of these houses to write about this early work of Richard Neutra because it hadn't been done to that extent. And with the materials that I was able to conglomerate rather than just add, but just put them together from the United States, from London and from Berlin and outside of Berlin. So did other people in the area, were they aware of the history, the buildings that they were living in? I think most people are now, but also I think it's just been during the last years, the bigger interest in the architecture they live in and the conservation of the architecture. And also because of the local government is very interested in supporting renovations and maybe unfolding some of the history that's mm -hmm. 
so close and not that well known. And that was one of the ideas for the Modernism Weekend because we figured it's a hundred years Great Berlin, Groß Berlin, that we celebrate this year. And the idea was to show what is in the district. Apart from the people who actually live in one of those buildings, who know about the houses, of course, in the house they live in, was to show a bigger public what's there, what they have right next to them with a with a walk or with a, actually the idea was to go into some of the houses and show people the architecture and compare it with other developments in the area but obviously due to corona that's not possible now so we'll have to stay outside but still these walks are arranged in a, such a fashion that you can see the development of certain streets or certain areas very well and then put them together eventually to get a bigger bigger picture it was planned for earlier this year wasn't it and now it's been postponed. yeah now it's happening on the 18th till 20th september It's six different tours, walks, concentrating on different areas in Steglitz-Seelendorf, showing the very early developments from 1921, connected with public developments or even a school in Wilskistrasse, showing what the idea of the architects were at that time, which was also, like Richard Neuter later realized in his biorealism, to connect the buildings in the Waldsiedlung with the actual nature around them, rather than just implementing a building into the trees and not connecting the buildings with the trees and with yeah. the nature around it. That's one of the ideas, but also to show the early movement of Neusbauen and Neusachlichkeit and to just make aware the variety of architects that were actually involved in that movement and to show the big players of that movement and the developers and investors like Sommerfeld mm -hmm. and the influence they had for the area. So they're very diverse aspects we're concentrating on of the modern movement and I hope that the public will be interested and then we'd like to take it from there. Then there will be a keynote speech on the Friday the 18th on the influence of modernism on architecture now. Then there will be a concert finishing off that weekend also by composers influenced by the early movement in the 1920s. Were there any things that you discovered when you were putting it together that you didn't know about in the area? Yeah, that was the fascinating thing because you always think you know your area quite well. Yeah. <laughs> Actually down the street, I realized that there was another development by Walter Gropius, which was the origin of the Sommerfeld Hour. It's literally seven houses down and I sort of knew about it, but not really. And once you start going back into research and still see the building there and realize, okay, yeah, that's that makes total sense for the whole street yeah. and for the whole development in that area. But things like that are fascinating. Also, near Mexico Platz, I accidentally, and I probably would have discovered if I would have looked for it, is another building by Horn. It's also a colleague of Mendelssohn, where Richard Neuter was working with him as well in 1921. Yeah. This building was just recently completely renovated and it's absolutely stunning just to be able to see things like that in a street with so many houses where, you know, nothing stands out at the first moment, but yeah. at the second. And that's what's fascinating. So we also like to concentrate on buildings that are important, but maybe not in the first row mm -hmm. of what you would like to find if you look for, uh, let's say, the architecture of Neusbaum in Stiglitz-Hellendorf. And one would always look at the Gropius House in Fischerhüttenstraße, of course. Yeah. There are are so many other buildings just of the same kind of importance if not even more and very influential as well so this is what we'd like to discover with yeah. the people we take along on that tour. Because was most of the area constructed around that time? No, there were some houses from yeah. the late 19th century and older buildings as well. But generally the whole area 
because of the connection with the underground and the S-Bahn. The Mexico Platz had the S-Bahn and Comolanca was the last station of the underground. Yeah, for the U3. Walking time between Comolanca and Mexico Platz is about 10 minutes. By having that station, it would just mean you connected around the city totally, yeah. even living in the outskirts of Berlin. So that was why we always figured that the Grenanderplatz, that's what the Comolanca is called, mm -hmm. after the architect who designed the station, it's incredibly important and it just connected you to the city. That's why the area became attractive, because you could commute without having to take a car mm -hmm. and still work in the city and live in the countryside. I hope you enjoyed hearing the insights about Richard Neutra, his involvement in the birth of modern architecture and his contribution to international style. I know for me this was quite an educational episode, not only in terms of architecture and design, but also the history of Berlin and hearing about what else was taking place in the city shortly before very serious and more catastrophic events took place. The Wochenende der Moderne begins on Friday the 18th of September 2020 at 6.30pm with a keynote speech in the House in Waldsee. Over the course of the weekend, there are six guided tours that you can take exploring different parts of Steglitz-Zellendorf where you can see many examples of modern architecture from Richard Neutra, Ernst Freud, Bruno Tau and Walter Gropius, among others. Check the link in the show notes if you'd like to find out more. As always, if you'd like to know anything else about this episode, today's guest or the topics we spoke about, you're more than welcome to get in touch. My social media details are in the comments below. Thanks once again for tuning in. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.